the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. Today, we've got an interesting program. In a few moments, I'll speak with Peter W. Wood. Uh, Dr. Peter Wood is the head of the National Association of Scholars. Our conversation will be about higher education, what to do about it, and he has a great perspective on that, both as a longtime professor and a provost of a university and also as a, a scholarly critic of where we are. He wrote a book called 1620, which is a, a sort of um, idea by idea rebuttal, if that's the right phrase, of um, the uh, the 1619 project, which has um, gotten so much attention, obviously. So uh, we'll talk with him in a few moments and um, a lot more, a lot more. I think Ted Malik's on the on the plate, too. So uh, what to talk about today, what you need to know today, what's the key takeaway from today? And I, you know, I was buffeted. I was going to talk about this, uh, the coach, the praying coach who was a uh, Supreme Court said, yeah, of course you can pray. Of course you can pray after a football game. You shouldn't be able to be fired for that because you're a praying coach. But that's and that's a great decision. That's a real serious decision. I was thinking I would talk about the um, January 6th. Uh, situation. The select committee is having another hearing. I guess they had a hearing. I haven't watched much of it uh, minute by minute. Uh, but I tell you, that hoax, that propaganda hoax is one of the most powerful things in American political life right now. It, it may or may not work in the long run. I don't think the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax worked the way they wanted. They wanted to take out Trump, but it did work in making, I don't know, 20 percent, 30 percent of the country crazy. And it worked in making 80 percent of the country think there was something going on. And that's what I think the select, select committee uh, and the January 6th uh, show trial is doing. But I, I, I backed off all that. And what I want to talk to you about, what you need to know today, is we're watching the lurching back from America first to America last, or at least America of the world. Um, Joe Biden has been in uh, Europe. He's at the G7 meetings first, which is the the industrialized nations, the biggest nations of the Europe and and others. And then he's going over to the NATO meetings in Spain. I think the I think the G7 meetings are uh, in um, in uh, um, Bavaria in, in Germany somewhere in some picturesque little town with the Alps in the background. And then they go over to uh, Spain and there's a new socialist prime minister who's going to host them there who wants um, he wants. He, I love this. The socialist mayor, uh, president, uh, uh, prime minister of, of Spain, um, they spend barely one percent of their GDP on a military defense. Um, and everybody's supposed to in NATO spend two percent. So he said, yeah, yeah, we're going to get to that maybe in the next 20 or 25 years. Do you do you remember when Donald Trump was saying we're going to make these guys pay their fair share and he was getting them to pay their fair share? They were moving on that issue. Well, that was just a few years ago. But back to my point, what you need to know is we're putting ourselves in the position, again, of allowing Europe to dictate our policies uh, to at least, I think, Finland. I don't know with Finland and maybe another nation are going to apply for NATO, NATO membership. And we're for it, we say. We're all for it. In other words, so we've got ourselves in a position where we're putting all of this um, NATO activity and aiming it at Russia 
and pretending that Russia is the greatest threat to America. It may be a threat to its neighbors. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it feels like we we watched um, Europe and America. We we participated in egging him on. But what you need to know right now is even the people at NATO, even the prime minister of Spain, who is hosting it, who did an interview with the AP, a lengthy interview, even even he acknowledges everybody acknowledges the real problem is China. But NATO won't say that out loud. And the reason NATO won't say that out loud is because now the economies of NATO and America are on the on the brink of depression, or if, if not recession. And so if you don't have the strength, you know, you can't be America first or you can't be anything if you don't have the strength to do it. And so what you're seeing and what you need to know is we've weakened ourselves because our economy is so weak and Europe has weakened itself. The story's coming out now this week. Italy has admitted its its leadership that they're headed to a recession. Europe is in a recession. Germany has said they have a, an energy problem. They're going to try to restart nuclear power plants, but they have an energy problem. All of Europe is under a, a cloud of higher inflation, inflation and higher unemployment, but more troubling in terms of the economy, their uh, interest rates. The European Central Bank is going to raise interest rates. So we've all put ourselves in a position as, a, as America, America led on it, of weakening ourselves so that our true enemy, China, nobody can say it about. You can't get people to say it because they need the help. So Europe is not going to blast China because they need the help. You go to Northern Italy, you'll see a, a business after business owned by Chinese money, the Chinese nationals, Chinese companies. And Chinese is, the Chinese government is spending money all over the world. The so-called uh, Belt and uh, 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 the Belt and Road initiatives. So, what you need to know is we made a terrible. We have made a terrible mistake by putting ourselves in a position where we are beholden to other nations to keep our nation going strong. And once America's weak, everybody else gets weak too. That's the real lesson. And so Joe Biden's over there and he's talking. I don't know. He's saying anything. There's nothing I can say. Going to stand with Ukraine, he says. Ukraine's being lost minute by minute because we're not willing to fight for Ukraine on the ground. Thank goodness. So it's really shaping up. It's going to be a long, long year or so going forward. But you'll you'll watch these NATO and the G7 uh, uh, prancing and and cavorting and, and 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 talking big when they're weak. They're weaker than they've ever been. All right, we have to take a break and we'll come back. We're going to come back with Peter W. Wood, Dr. Peter Wood, uh, right after this break. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, go to ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up there for the Daily Wink, and that's what you need to know. Be right back. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report on my bookshelf. And I think I sent this photograph over. I'm Ted Malika, our friend who's often on the program, um, mentioned to me that I needed to catch up with Peter Wood, which is always a good idea. And on my um, 
on my bookshelf are two books that he wrote. One is called Wrath, America Enraged, which is really interesting and really one that I like a lot. The other one is 1620. And uh, that's a book that is about the you know real origins of America and uh, taking on the 1619 project sort of, uh, uh, I don't know if it's line by line isn't the right word, but, but argument by argument uh, and does a great job. And uh, Peter W. Wood, of course, is well known to folks uh, as a commentator, as someone who has been um, uh, the leader of the national. Association of Scholars. Uh, he himself was a former college, I think a provost, a professor of anthropology. He's written a lot. Um, another one that he wrote called A Bee in the Mouth is also really good from about 15 years ago. So welcome back, Dr. Wood. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. Well, so my, my first question is, how far gone are a lot of our universities. I know we're fighting over CRT in schools and schools and lower schools. And, and my, finally, my oldest is going to go to college next year. And I'm looking closely and I'm thinking most of these places seem totally lost. Well, that's not uh, far off. <laughs> if you think our schools, the K-12 schools are in considerable trouble, the colleges are much further down that path. In right. fact, the schools got that way because they trained the teachers who the universities trained the teachers. So right. they've been uh, uh, embroiled in the world of neo-Marxist ideology for a couple generations now. That's not to say that it's just the same old, same old. It's gotten a lot worse in the last five years, and especially the last two years. Um, so what is the future? Um, you know, when one of the things that Ted Malik and I were talking about is that, uh, you know, the idea of what the future could be, you almost have to help people imagine something different than where we are now. You know, it's not for years and years. I had some friends that would say, we're going to fix the public schools, mostly K through 12. We're going to get in there and fix it. And, and after the, about halfway through COVID, one of those leaders, Alex Newman, he said, that's it. I can't even try. I, we, 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 I'm just not even going to stay in this system. And that was a big shift for him. So what, 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 help, me, help us imagine the future. Well, I can imagine a, a longer-term future, but let me start with something that's nearer term. Okay. Right now, American higher education is in a market meltdown situation. Uh, less than 10 years ago, they had about 19 million undergraduate students enrolled. We're now down to about 15 million. Hmm. Uh, that's a very substantial decline in the people who are willing to spend the enormous amounts of money and the portion of their lives being indoctrinated in these institutions. There has been correspondingly a decline in the quality of the education that the students get. Many of them now graduate with meager skills, so much so that the college degree is no longer, as it once was, uh, a near guarantee of at least respectable occupation. Instead, students are pretty much having squandered four or five, even six years of their young lives, find themselves basically on the market for the kinds of jobs that didn't require a college degree at all. Uh, or they're just dropping out and not pursuing any kind of meaningful work, period. So in some sense, the problem could be self-correcting. Our colleges and universities have become so bad that much of the American public is saying, no, thank you. And I think that's likely to grow. The colleges and universities are aware that it's growing. They are holding basically emergency meetings now all the time, trying to figure out what they can do to repair the circumstance. 
Should they bring in more international students? Should they lower the standards even further? Um, they're panicking, and mm-hmm. that panic is uh, well warranted. But it's also an opportunity for those of us who think that something beyond mere reform at the edges is needed. We need to transform American higher education into something much better than it currently is. That's going to mean restoration of some of the older principles that used to govern. But we also have to take account of this being a different world, and some things are going to be new. So what can be done? Uh, well, there are now a handful, maybe more than a handful, of new startup colleges and universities that are attempting to uh, start over. Uh, that's not a bad idea, although it's really, really difficult and quite expensive. Right. Another thing we can do is uh, try to help the American public understand that a college degree is not the only option for their 17-year-olds headed out of high school for an unknown future. There are lots of other things that people could do to attain prosperity, security, a good life, and even a degree of wisdom. Um, so uh, I'll start by putting those on the table. New institutions, right. uh, rechanneling people away from colleges and universities that are probably beyond reform. But of course, there's always the effort to try to make what we've got better. And yeah. I, I do that too. Well, uh, so we're, we're talking with Dr. Peter W. Wood, and he is the uh, president of the National Association of Scholars and a prolific writer and uh, editor-in-chief of the journal America, uh, Academic Questions. Um, may I ask, um, when you say that that decrease in enrollment, doesn't that mean um, the most likely scenario is that I think it's hundreds, maybe thousands of universities will go out of business? Uh, but the problem is they're all the ones that are sort of second and third tier because they can't make the numbers work and it will solidify the sort of gatekeeping status of the, uh, of the public universities because they're, they're living off the taxpayers and the major sort of legacy institutions that have these massive endowments and know how to sort of really manage the system. So aren't we headed towards <clears throat> less options uh, or, or a stratification? And may, I mean, your point may be that that's the opportunity for people to say, hey, I, I'm not going to go to Harvard. I'm not going to go to Yale. I'm not going to go to to Notre Dame, um, but I'm not going to go to, you know, St. Mary's uh, of the lake because it's gone. Um, and I'm going to do something totally different. But that seems like it's going to put uh, it's going to solidify the power of those gatekeepers, maybe more than ever. Well, those are all perfectly good points. Uh, let me push back to the degree I can on, uh-huh. on that. The, uh, the really elite institutions, there yeah. are maybe 200 of them all together um, that are uh, top-tier liberal arts colleges or major endowed Ivy League universities and so forth. Right. They're not going anyplace. They, they will be with us, and they will continue to do what they're doing. But what they are doing is so counterproductive. They're miseducating so many students that I think that their their cultural footprint is going to be declining. Yes, people will want the prestige you get from going to Princeton or Yale or Harvard um, or Notre Dame. It doesn't necessarily mean that those degrees are going to operate in our society the way they used to. institutions remain gatekeepers, but gatekeepers to what? Gatekeepers to a wilderness in which the graduates don't know very much, have few skills, but are full of pompous self-regard. 
Well, our society can absorb a fair percentage of pompous self-regarding degree holders, but they're just not going to have the influence and clout that they once did. So I think that the, uh, the decline there uh, goes deeper than simply decline in numbers at the second and third tier institutions. Yes, you're right that the uh, financially most vulnerable institutions are these small scale, frequently sectarian colleges, oftentimes in small uh, towns in rural America. Um, they're having a very hard time making the numbers work for them now. And it's only going to get worse. If you look at places like Moody's that does a ranking of these, they, they see uh, disaster looming in the next few years for a lot of these places. Uh, they do have a way out, unfortunately, a partial way out, which is that they all look to the federal government and the state governments to bail them out. And that's what happened during the COVID shutdown when they were all teetering on the edge and the federal government came in with many billions of dollars to keep them going. Um, so there is a, a question that hangs in the air as to how long the American taxpayer will be willing to uh, subsidize to prevent the disappearance of the lower ranks of our colleges. The truth is that those, those places don't really have any strong claim uh, for our support or their continued existence. Why? Because they too have compromised away their real reasons for existing. If they were uh, uh, religious colleges of some sort, in many cases, they've already compromised with the secular world so that their religious mission has become de minimis. Um, in other cases, they struggle on trying to provide a reasonable liberal arts college and they're not doing it very well. Part of the reason why they're not doing it very well is that they hire their professoriate from the graduate schools at these big universities where those individuals come out knowing a whole lot about deconstruction and virtually nothing about civilization. Uh, so I'm both pessimistic and optimistic. I think a purge of higher education brought not by some heavy-handed uh, use of government authority to shut them down, but by letting them reap the consequences of their own bad behavior is not a bad thing. There will always be a need for higher education, and there will always be people finding a way to meet that need. Maybe it's going to be through starting new institutions, maybe the hollow shells of the ones that are uh, on the edge of financial collapse will be co-opted by wiser people who say, we can do this better. We can do it without the great uh, fleet of diversified administrators who now outnumber the faculty at most of these institutions. Uh, there are ways in which we could salvage the situation. We could take victory from the jaws of defeat here, but it's not going to happen without there being a period of pain for people like you who are trying to figure out how to get your children a decent education. There just aren't very many options right now for a post-secondary decent education, which may be one reason why one should be looking beyond colleges and universities for the next step in life. Uh, Dr. Peter Wood is our guest, um, but um, he is, of course, the president of the National Association of Scholars. Um, 
Dr. Wood, does other have other parts of the world faced this problem? Europe, I'm thinking of, and had found a way forward. I mean, I think the university system in other parts of the of the world, and I, I guess I only know Europe well enough, but has sort of a very a different model. And but they probably have the same problem in terms of the academic rot. Um, has anybody figured out a, a path forward that's a good model? Well, I think the European approach, which of course varies from country to country, um, doesn't have this particular kind of problem. Uh, that is because most of them have avenues for students to pursue from their teenage years on that don't necessarily lead them to college. I see. So, right. so that's a big advantage. That yeah. is, and there are other advantages. They have, for example, in uh, Europe, uh, you don't take a four-year undergraduate program and then go on to, say, law school. You go directly to law school. So yeah. the professional avenues are no longer in Europe uh, tied to the undergraduate model. Now, I prefer what we've had in America in the past. A good four-year undergraduate education uh, is something that uh, has a lot of uh, intellectual, moral, social power to it, uh, but it's also captured and spoiled by those who uh, take the, the shell, the, the idea of a liberal education, and put in its place a mere indoctrination. So is there a way out of that in Europe? Well, uh, I would say Europe has a lot of the same indoctrination problems uh, in some cases, even worse, uh, mm. as bad as the uh, sustainability, the green movement is in American higher education. It's way worse in European universities. Huh. So, so um, probably not. Okay, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to run out of time. But give me finish with finish us uh, finish our conversation with hope and optimism that we have going forward. We have we have uh, we have uh, a path forward. You mentioned early on. You put this on the table. The the and, and then but that it, it, you know are you optimistic in the next twenty five years the system will shake out and we'll see that. Are you seeing the the shoots of entrepreneurialism or what? give us give us finish us with a little more optimism? I'm optimistic that in 25, maybe 30, 35 years, we will see a form of higher education in the United States that we can genuinely be proud of. We have to see through the uh, disappearance of a generation of academics who have uh, taken hold of things in the wrong way, but they will be replaced by people who love knowledge and who love this country. The, the idea that uh, Education is not just about preparing yourself for prosperity, but about being part of a self-governing republic will not go away. And I'm, I'm very optimistic that fundamental American values will reassert themselves. It's a shame that it comes at the cost of uh, having lost a couple of generations to people who maleducated our students, but there's enough good solid wood in the forest there that we will rebuild our institutions 
from the ground up and we will make them even better. Hmm. All right, good. That's good. That's good. That's good optimism. Dr. Peter W. Wood, president of the National Association of Scholars, prolific author of the two uh, uh, books, as I mentioned, that I'm uh, so aware of on my shelf. I can see him in front of me is 1620, A Critical Response to the 1619 Project, and also his book uh, on uh, wrath. I think it's called wrath. And it's, uh, where is that? it's over there, too. And so thank you, Dr. Wood, uh, for your time and for all your insight. And we will speak again. Thank you so much for having me. Yep, it's a great conversation. I'll put all that up on social media, media everybody. Uh, it's a good long interview. There's a lot of there there and also links to his books. Uh, it's important time to be uh, checking in on that. So thank you to our old friend, Dr. Ted Malik, for recommending that I catch up with Peter now. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report, back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. A few weeks ago, I had as a guest on the program, Naomi Wolf. And Naomi Wolf has a new book out. And I tell you, a lot of my listeners were really interested to hear from her. The book is called The Bodies of Others, The New Authoritarians, COVID-19, and the War Against Humans. Um, and Naomi Wolf, of course, is famous as an author, as a public figure, a professor. And also, I think, I, you, you can correct me, Naomi. Uh, I mean, one of the leading feminists. I'm not sure which of the, how you'd say which wing you're in or what, what it's about, <laughs> but it was a great conversation. And I thought, I, now that we have the Dobbs decision, it's, um, it's, it's an interesting time to catch up with Naomi Wolf. So uh, welcome back to the program. How are you? Good. I'm so happy to be speaking with you again and, you're, and to your audience. Well, yeah, you're very nice. So we had a great conversation. So you're, you're in an interesting position because uh, as the COVID hit, you became one of the voices that I think really uh, helped uh, people look up and say, wait, uh, I'm, I'm usually on the left side of the aisle on some politics issues with so-and-so or I'm on the right side and such and such. And you were saying, wait a second, the power that's being amassed and how uh, voices are silenced is a problem. And I mean, it was probably a mixed blessing in a way, right? I mean, people thought, oh, let's listen to Naomi Wolf that maybe never did very much. And other people said, oh, she's a traitor or a sellout or something. It must have been a fascinating time. Um, well, yes. I mean, uh, I if what you mean is that I was kind of banned and banished and attacked by the legacy media that I've been writing for and a columnist for for 35 years. Uh, yes, <laughs> that did happen. Um, right. And if you're re- referencing the fact that, um, you know, I've been warmly welcomed and, and embraced by conservatives and libertarians and, and kind of the more and more uh, home, like politically homeless liberals like me who right. don't recognize what's going on on the left side of the political spectrum. Um, that's also happened. I'm grateful for my new <laughs> friends. Uh, yeah. But yeah. It's been a journey. So now, now comes Dobbs. And for many, many years, you've been someone that talked about uh, a woman's right to choose and, and when, in that language. And, and I think if I can say you're consistent on control of one's body. One of the things you said was the vaccines and how it was being done and all is, um, um, you know, is a problem. And you were talking about authoritarianism as your book title uh, references, the new authoritarians. So how, how did you take Dobbs? I mean, I, I took, you know, I worked for Phyllis, the late Phyllis Schlafly for so long. And in some funny ways, when the Dobbs decision came down, which I always hoped would happen, it felt unreal to me. I didn't think actually it would happen. How did you react? Well, um, Good question. I, I wrote a, a substack about this actually uh, on my substack. I actually think Dobbs was well decided. And I think that it's, 
ultimately a feminist outcome. I mean, the argument I make, and I'm pro-choice for, you know, within the first trimester um, for adult women. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, you know, in my essay, I pointed out that the decision really, I think, was in large part a result of pro-choice overreach over mm-hmm. the last 30 years. Um, and, and I'll get to why I think it's actually a feminist decision in a minute. But in terms of the overreach, I, I feel like most Americans, well, the polls say this, agree with, even if they don't like, um, an adult woman's uh, option to terminate a pregnancy in the first trimester. But what happened was that, you know, the pro-choice movement, the, and I'm saying the institutional pro-choice movement, because this really isn't rank and file ordinary, you know, pro-choice women, um, but they were kind of swept along by this or didn't, need, I, I think many don't even realize the extent of it. But anyway, the organized movement kept pushing and pushing and not being satisfied with, um, you know, what all of Western Europe has, which is, you know, readily available right to terminate in the first trimester, but otherwise no, right? You know, very few exceptions. Well, the American pro-choice movement pushed for many states, you can terminate up until the day of a baby's birth, which is madness. Um, Mm -hmm. And in and then they also kept pushing for kids, to minors, uh, to be able to make the decision without parental consent or in many cases without parents being informed at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and lastly, they kept pushing for this to be funded by the taxpayer. And so I just kind of walked through each of those and I pointed out that sane, moderate people who would have supported the right for a woman to terminate, an adult woman to terminate the first trimester – cannot go along with later and later abortions, cannot go along with minors um, being put in the position of strangers who don't even know her, advising her about a monumental decision. And cannot, you know, many uh, religious people can't go along with using their state, um, you know, using their tax dollars to pay for something they don't agree with. So in all these three examples of overreach, I I think that that the pro-choice movement hastened the overturning of Roe. It was unsustainable and it shouldn't have been sustained in this in this current uh, situation in which it was being used to to cover like catastrophic harms to women and and fetuses and babies. And then the, the last thing I would say is, ultimately, I think Dobbs is a well-reasoned feminist decision because, it, you know, and I read the decision, which a lot of people on the left haven't done. And it's right. really good. And and basically, they say, um, you know, this goes back into the hands of women, because women are the majority of voters, state by state. And also, I did an analysis, and I'm almost done with my riff, but I did an analysis <laughs> of, you know, the state legislatures, and they're over 40% female in, in um, the top 10 cases. Nevada is majority female. So it's no longer the, the left-wing narrative of uh, old, uh, oppressive white men, um, you know, against, uh, you know, women who are just trying to survive. Uh, women have a lot of power and authority they didn't have when Roe was decided. And I do believe that uh, going back to the states, it leads it to be a discussion, a debate among women, pro-life women and pro-choice women, because women are leading those movements. And, and those are legitimate t- disagreements. 
Yeah, we're talking with Naomi Wolf, uh, and again, her book is uh, out just recently called, the, and the title is The Bodies of Others, and the first one of those, The New Authoritarians, um, and then on COVID-19, and, and you're talking about um, the war against uh, the human, humans, um, but the, the, the new, um, the new uh, authoritarians. I, I want to ask you about that because that, that that I'll go find your Substack. I'm I'm sorry I didn't read it, and I'll put that up on social media too. Uh, Naomi Wolf, the answer. I'm so interested now to to read that because you're a good good writer. Everybody knows and smart and all, but um, but the 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 the, the um the authoritarians. I watch the media and the coverage of things, and you watch. The, I'm talking about the uh, the legacy media, but the legacy media. You know, I, I'm I'm in St. Louis as we record this, and and um I I am um seeing friends that are not into politics or anything. And they're talking about events like the January 6th, uh, what the select committee as what was fed, right. As, as what was played mm. out. And they're talking about COVID as you know, in, in the, in the language of what was fed out and what was, you know, managed. And, and it's not, it's not only sometimes not true, although I don't know always about something someone says, but it's clearly true now that people are persuaded by the power of the big media and big tech together and they're led a certain direction and a lot of people then end up with that opinion and when it's so for example on Dobbs uh, I thought when the Alito decision I'm sorry my question is a riff now but my when the Alito decision leaked there was a weekend where they tried to say uh, the media oh you're gonna arrest women and you know criminalize women's conduct and then they realized that wasn't working because no one wants to do that Mm. Um, but 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 as they as they come through this you, you, it just feels like we can't get a real conversation. We can't get a real set of truths argued about because the power is really authoritarian. But and I, the way I use it, uh, I, I'll, I will stop now, though. I talk about the narrative machine, which is big tech, big media and big government. So you watched Biden's talking points in one direction and then big media and big government. And I don't know where you how we break out of that. Hmm. Um, well, that's a good point. I mean, my mom lets me use her as kind of a touchstone for the <laughs> educated, you know, right. left. And yeah. she was so angry about the Roe decision. And I said, have you read the opinion? And she's like, no, but I'm watching the news. And I'm like, mom, just read the opinion because the news and the, you know, the primary documents no longer have anything to do with each other anymore. Same with January 6th. Um, and so, you know, for instance, she had no idea that there were FBI infiltrators um, in, in, in the crowd, none at all. Uh, And, and I also, I mean, I kind of am nervous about even talking about this, but I can't understand anything about January 6th because I've been to the Senate office buildings, the Rayburn building, which is right around the corner. And you can't get, you can't get in there without, your name being on a list with, you know, there's, I just don't get the, the, the physicality of it because, you know, there are snipers on the, on the steps of the, of the Capitol under ordinary circumstances, like right there. Anyway, leaving that aside. um, I, I think what we've got right now is a situation very much exacerbated by AI. Um, And I go into this in my book, Mm -hmm. the bodies of others, in which, you know, we've been driven uh, into our homes by the lockdowns, we are driven onto social media, and there are, are the algorithms can manipulate the conversations we're having so that mm-hmm. we're really only having them with ourselves and getting more and more inflamed. Um, and bots and trolls uh, add to this effect so that the things conservatives 
think liberals believe or the things they see pro, you know, Jane's revenge allegedly doing torching clinics or whatever, bear no relationship to the kind of conversation you would have with a pro-choice neighbor or fellow worshiper. It, you know, if you were right. able to talk to them again in your church or synagogue or in a town hall or in a, you know, bowling league or whatever. And that's why these bad actors that I describe in my book want to dissolve those human contexts where we can actually talk to each other. Um, and so also something bad has happened on the left, which is the left has been conditioned to believe that everyone on the right is a fascist, insurrectionist, misogynist, transphobe. And, right. and, and that therefore on the left, it's necessary to not talk to you and to, yeah. um, and, and also to uh, say things like, I mean, someone on the left told me on my Substack, and I'm a liberal that, you know, that I was disappointing and emotionally manipulative because I was giving both sides of the <laughs> views of conservative, right. you know, pro-life women and pro-choice women. Right. So only the left right now is using this kind of tendentious language. And the, the effect is it deters, like I, I said to this person, I don't even want to have a debate anymore with the left. And I'm on the left. Right, right, right. This is a deterrent. It's a, a knock-on effect because who wants to try to have a civil dialogue if you're just going to be abused and called names? So this is intentional. And when I describe this, I always want people to look at the big picture, which is China wants us to have a civil war, right? right. The World Economic Forum wants us to fall apart as a country. So how do you do that? You divide and divide and divide. They want us not to talk to each other directly. Um, and the antidote to that is direct human communication, the what I call humane spaces, in-person spaces, rebuilding our community face-to-face um, across the political spectrum uh, so that we can be one country again and, the, and not letting them divide us uh, at their own, you know, for their own purposes. Again, the book is The Bodies of Others, and uh, we're talking with Naomi Wolf. Um, by, by the way, because I do it, my listeners will laugh when I, they'll hear me do it again, but there's an essay, you probably have read it, but it, it, what you describe uh, about this sort of um, the... Um, the, where we are, the essay was, I think, 79 or so, and it was uh, Valak Havel, uh, who later became the Czech Republic president. It's called The Power of Powerless, The Power of the Powerless. And in it, the thing that struck me in one portion, he talks about how, why did the, the shopkeeper put up a sign that said, uh, Workers of the World Unite? He didn't really think that. He didn't really worry about it, but he was signaling both to the powers that be and to the people that were coming in there that you can be safe because I understand I've got to play along. And he goes on to say, sort of, self-censorship and what i would call it past that now is it's one thing to not want to put your head up and have to hear from your aunt judy how you're a terrible person which is regular for people that supported trump i mean i would tell another therapy session on that but but you don't even you don't even want to act so it's beyond self-censorship it's it's in action it's a kind of self-censoring in terms of what you do because it's you're not going to do it either and so i I point to that essay but i want to ask you one more question about a, a, a particular moment in time Elon Musk, perhaps buying Twitter and having some instincts that seem I mean, I don't know what he'll be like to run it, but seem much more uh, open to letting things kind of flow and being less driven by certain of the algorithms. Does that excite you or does that seem unrealistic that it'll work in the end? Do you do you do you see that you're not going to find your way through any of the social media or media as a way to get this? Uh, get a conversation going. It's a different, it's a different um, put down the, the smartphone and go visit your neighbor. 
Um, are, are you asking if I think that that's realistic to ask people to do that or to expect that they will? No, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I, do you think Elon Musk taking over Twitter will, will be a, could be something that could be a real opportunity for more uh, humane interaction or more positive oh, uh, uh, space? And then or do you think, you know, that it's just, you're not going to get these social media things. They're, they're designed that way. So don't that's not where you should put your energy. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you know, they've the bad guys have created huge um, distractions. And I see this as a distraction. Elon Musk has close ties to China, Chinese investors, the Chinese communist party, like all of these um, meta, you know, tech oligarchs are, are, you know, and I, I go into detail in the bodies of others have relationships with bad entities that transcend nation states. And so, um, you know, would it make a difference? Uh, I mean, I, I, I really Only think it's a distraction edges. because he, you know, yeah. he would just be one investor, right? Mm-hmm, um, right? You know, he could sell at any time. The real danger is when we put our, when we let tech be our town halls, right? And I see right. this as a tech CEO, but I, that's why I understand the danger of it. Every, you know, all of, all of your bank records right now are digital. Well, they could switch those off in a cyber attack. And then, you know, what is the great reset? I mean, right. that's what I'm anticipating. I'm printing out and moving all of my liquid assets because I fully anticipate that there will be, you know, a glitch in the, you know, digital banking uh, record world, um, leaving us to kind of start over um, with hmm. our wealth erased. Um, you mm-hmm. know, if we leave all of our communications on Facebook and Twitter and never talk to people in person, um, they can manipulate the algorithms. You know, my mom's feed looks nothing like my feed. Uh, because, and so she has no idea um, about truths right. that are being censored by Facebook that are not being censored by Getter. So basically, you know, use technology, I guess, but it is a chimera to think that one tech mm-hmm. oligarch versus another is going to liberate us. We need to have all of our systems and choices be in our own control and in community control, mm-hmm. human community control, um, and everything else be a you know backup or secondary. Well, th- uh, Naomi Wolf, thank you. I'm out of time, unfortunately. Uh, it's a fascinating conversation on so many levels. Again, the book is The Bodies of Others. And uh, in particular, I'll find that substack and put it up, too, about the Dobbs decision. Thank you, as usual, for your time. Thank you so much. Take care. Oh, okay, bye now. Uh, I'll put it all up on social media, everybody, over at, uh, of course, ProAmericaReport.com. ProAmericaReport. Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.